I want to take us uh, back in history, back in time for a few moments. July 4th, 1939. I don't know if very many of us were alive back then, but some of us may remember that date. July 4th, 1939, Lou Gehrig addressed the crowd at his hometown stadium and gave his farewell address, his farewell to baseball. And he said this, He said, fans, for the past two weeks, you have been reading about a bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and and encouragement from you fans. And look at these grand men. Which of you wouldn't consider it the highlight of his career just to associate with them for even one day? Sure, I am lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to have known Jacob Rupert, also the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow, to have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins, then to have spent the the next nine years with that outstanding leader, that smart student of psychology, the best manager in baseball today, Joe McCarthy. Sure, I'm lucky. And when the New York Giants, a team that you would give your right arm to beat and vice versa, sends you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, It's a blessing. And when you have a wife who is a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. You see, two weeks earlier, the news broke that Lou Gehrig had what is known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. It's a debilitating disease that eventually became nicknamed Lou Gehrig's disease. You see, April 29th, April 30th of that year, he played his last game. He was too physically weak to continue. So he went to the Mayo Clinic and doctors examined him and looked him over and finally came to the conclusion two weeks earlier that he would not ever be able to play baseball again. His body was just too weak. He needed to to conserve his energy. And they didn't fully understand how this disease was going to take his life. Just under two years later, Lou Gehrig died at the age of 37. And I say that because there are various times and places when people get a sense that their end is near. They get this idea, this inclination, "Ah, I probably better make plans. I know my stepdad was that way. He was so worried for my mom that he made her sell the boat, sell her car, and buy a more reliable car and all these things and made sure she knew where all the documents were. And today, as we look, continue to look at the book of John, we're crossing into what some people call the farewell discourse in chapters 13 through 17. Some people see it as one, some people see it as two. We're going to look at it as one big 
discourse. And today we're really only getting to the introduction of that discourse. But you see, in this, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure and their ongoing mission. He wants them to understand that he's not going to be around physically with them forever. So he's pouring into their lives for a reason. And so if you have your Bibles and want to open them to John chapter 13, let me encourage you to do that. We will have verses on the screen. We're going to go to a lot of different verses as well. Um, But if you remember last week, Jesus had just finished washing his disciples' feet. He had taken all this time to, to humiliate himself in front of them, and then he challenged them. He said, guys, just as I have done for you, so you should do for, for each other. You should do for other people. And so, and then he, he begins in the section that Melody read. One of the things that we're gonna, we, we see, we get to observe, is that Jesus made three predictions. He illustrated two outcomes. And he issues one new command. And so we're going to look at those today. And so Jesus begins with three predictions. And the first prediction is this regarding Judas's betrayal. So here he is after washing their feet. He's encouraging them. He's challenging them. And then in verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I got to tell you, this is an element of God's work in our lives that is sometimes mysterious, that is sometimes challenging and difficult to consider. The fact that God is sovereign and it is his will to choose and not to choose those who will be his followers. Jesus did gather all 12 disciples and he acknowledges that not all of them are truly his. He pulled 12 and he lost one. And he tells them this, he tells them that not all of them are his in order to connect some dots. He's looking back to the Old Testament, he's looking to today, and he's looking actually to the next couple of days so that they can understand how the thread of Scripture is weaving itself through Jesus' life. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 41.9 where he says, Even my close friend whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And he claims that what is about to happen is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, that whole psalm is not a prophetic psalm. Jesus pulled that out in order to help us understand how it applies in this situation. But there's another biblical dot that Jesus is pulling together, a biblical thread that he is weaving for his disciples. Not only is he saying, hey, that scripture is talking about me. But then he's also telling them, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you'll know who I am. In fact, look at what it says in verses 19. He's, trying, he's working to prove to his followers that Jesus is I am or I am he. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives me, I'm sorry, receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You see, there's a great deal of significance in that small little phrase, I am, or I am he. And in many ways, that Greek pair of words is used just like we would. We would use it. I am Joel. I am a male. I am a father and a husband. We would use all those words. And in many ways, the Greek is, is the same. But, 
But when Jesus says, I am he, I think he's also pulling back, taking the disciples back to some things that were said in the Old Testament. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses asked God, he said, God, who shall I tell the Israelites sent me? And God told Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. But in other places, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 4 says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And then again in Psalm 43, 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So Jesus, in giving this betrayal, this prediction of betrayal, is helping the disciples understand that Scripture, which is inspired by God, is fulfilled in him, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, and that he, like God the Father, is the great I Am. And then John continues his narration, beginning in verse 21. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And then the disciples go on and they work to to figure out. But let's jump down. See, while Jesus is God, while he is the I am, it doesn't mean that he's not without emotion. Scripture tells us that he was troubled in his spirit. He had a heavy heart because of what was about to take place. Jesus seemed to quietly and subtly reveal that Judas would be the one who would betray him. I don't think he said what he said. You see, you have this interesting scenario where it appears John was right next to Jesus. And Peter was probably in eyeshot of John. So Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter always wanted to know what's going on. He's like, hey, dude, figure it out. Ask him. Come on. I mean, you know how it is when you're in class and you really want to know what, the te- what that person said to that person at lunchtime and you're trying to pass notes, Psst, right? He's getting John's attention. So John, you remember, they're, they're laying down on these low pillows and, and the table is low, so it's not se- seated like we are. So he, he just kind of leans back on Jesus' chest. It's a little awkward for us to picture. He says, Jesus, who is it? And apparently Judas was on the other side. So he takes a piece of bread and hands it to Judas, telling him, it's this guy, the one I'm going to send this to. And I don't think he announced it out loud to everybody. It seemed to be kind of quiet. Because not everybody understood, I think, what John was given a little bit of insight into. But then Jesus did say, what you're going to do, do quickly. Or some translator, some commentator said, what you're going to do, do more quickly than you expected. And everybody else, as John writes here, everybody else realized, what is he sending out to sending him out with the money to get make preparations and to do some other things? And I think that one of the things that we have to realize is that Jesus is is helping his disciples, those who are gonna look back on this event, they're gonna say, 
Oh, he told us he would be betrayed. And look at what happened. In fact, in, in John 18, verses 1 to 14, that reveals the manifestation of what Judas would do. It would happen in a matter of hours. Judas would leave, and he would, his treachery and his treason, his betrayal would all be taking place. And then all of a sudden, in, in chapter 18, verses 1 to 14, we see Judas coming back with a, a legion of people, an army of people, basically telling him, telling betraying Jesus in front of them, arresting Jesus. And the other gospel writers give us a bit more information telling us that Judas had gone to the religious leaders and had been paid 30 pieces of silver for this betrayal. But the disciples would only need to wait a couple of days until Jesus' words would be fulfilled when he told them this first prediction. One of you will betray me. But there's a second prediction that Jesus makes, and that is regarding his departure. When we see this in verse 33, he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And at this point, Judas has gone out, and Jesus is just talking with his true followers, with 11 of the 12. And he basically tells them, guys, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back, but I'm going to go. And it's a little unclear if he's talking about his death, if he's saying, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. Or if he's saying, I'm going to go for a long time, and I'm going to come back in the manner that Carl prayed about just a few minutes ago. You see, there were some in that day who were expecting the Messiah to come and live Forever, We saw that a couple weeks ago in John 12, 34. But Jesus didn't come. Remember, he didn't come as a political leader. He didn't come to set up his kingdom and, and to reign the way he is going to now. He came to get things started so that we could continue his work. You see, in this prediction, it's also a little unclear. Jesus is unclear about the nature of what he will be doing. Or what will happen to him? And maybe Jesus doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't totally have all the insight. But we have been given this idea that he knows he's going to be lifted up. And whether that's glorified or whether that's lifted up on a cross of wood, that has been vague. But yet there are people who understood, seem to understand that Jesus was saying when he would be lifted up, he would be crucified. And we saw that in chapter 12 and also back in chapter 3. But there's a third prediction that Jesus makes. Not only was, Jesus, was Judas going to betray him, not only would he leave, but thirdly, that Peter would deny him. Peter's denial. You see, whereas Judas will betray Jesus, an act of, of treason that will send him to the cross, Peter, who has a propensity of thinking before he speaks, ends up denying Jesus in an act of cowardice. Look at verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And again, Jesus gives some very specific 
markers. He's not just going to deny him once. He's going to deny him three times. And he'll know that it all happened when the rooster crows. And if you want to make a note, we see in John 18, 15 to 18, that's the first time that Peter denies him. And then in John 18, 25 to 27, it reveals the second time. Let me just read that for us. John 18, 25 says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter said, Peter denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. I love that. I saw you cut off my cousin's ear. You were with him. There's blood on your sword. No, 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 not me. The evidence is irrefutable, and yet Peter still backs down. But Jesus, in this third prediction, kind of helps him understand this is going to take place. But I want us to draw a couple of brief conclusions from from Jesus' predictions here. And the first is this. I, I think it's important for us to read the whole counsel of God's word. There are times when, when we would just love to sit down and read the Psalms. I love how the psalmists write, how they pour out their hearts, how they praise God. I wish I could pray and sing the way that they do. Sometimes we love to just feast there. Sometimes it's in, in the epistles, in Paul's writings. We just like to sit down and read and be taught and understand, oh, Paul, help me understand Jesus the way that you do. Or maybe it's the Gospels. But I think it's important that we read the entirety of the Word of God, the whole counsel of the Word of God, so that we can see how the different parts come together. And I know that some parts of Scripture are are way more difficult to read than others. I just recently finished um, reading in Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, not Jeremiah. Well, Isaiah a few weeks ago, but Jeremiah and Lamentations. I'm in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's got some weird stuff. But when you read the weird stuff in Ezekiel and then you read the weird stuff in Revelation, you realize there's some similarities here. And I think it's important for us, just as Jesus was drawing a thread from the psalmist to him, to what would happen in the betrayal. I think it's important for us to read the entire council so that we can see these things connect and God is sovereign over all of it. And if you have one of those Bibles that has little cross-references where you might have the little tiny letter that you need to have a magnifying glass to read it, right? Every now and then, go back and look at it. See what they're pointing to so you can see how, how Scripture connects. But I I think secondly, in in addition to reading the whole counsel of God's word, I think secondly, we should be careful about our boasting. Peter was awfully bold when he was amongst his friends because he had a reason to be. Let me pound my chest and tell everybody, hey, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. It's easy to do when you're among friends, right? But when the going got tough, his, his knees got weak. I think it's better that when we tout our strengths, it's likely better to to be understated rather than overcommitting to something that we can't follow through with. Just be 
faithful. Just be faithful. But thirdly, I think we need to be gracious in our restoration of others. You see, later on, Jesus restores Peter graciously and lovingly. And you can read, that about, read about that in Psalm 21, 15 to 19. You see, it's easy to write people off and to tell them, hey, you, you offended me here. I, I want nothing to do with you. You hurt me here, so I, I, I don't ever want to talk to you again. Or I'm going to keep you at arm's length. And I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to get to. And that's certainly not what Jesus modeled. In fact, if we were to fast forward and look at the night that Jesus was betrayed, when, or, or the moment Jesus was betrayed, when Judas comes up with this army of people, and he goes and kisses Jesus. I mean, it was their normal greeting. It's kind of like our handshake or our, our hugs. He goes and kisses Jesus. Jesus seems to still welcome the kiss. You betray me with a kiss? And I think that we need to recognize that there are so many times when the, when the problem that a brother or sister in Christ may be presenting before us, when an offense that they may be offending us with, the easiest thing is to, to lock arms and say, no way. The loving thing, what Jesus would want us to do, I think, is to reconcile and to be one again. So Jesus made these three accurate predictions. But the next thing we see is that Jesus illustrates two outcomes in 31 to 32. And whether it's through the betrayal or the denial or what his disciples would be doing afterwards, Jesus reveals that both he and the Father are glorified in each other. John 13, 31 to 32 says, When he had gone out, he, meaning Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if the Son of Man is glorified, God will also glorify him in himself. And Glorify him at once. But notice the circumstance and the language. You see, right on the heels of Judas' departure, Jesus seems to talk directly to his guys, his chosen few. But also he says that the glorification he's referring to isn't happening later. It's happening now. It's, he says, now it is now is the Son of Man glorified. It has already happened. You see, the, the cross is a day away. The resurrection is likely four days away. His ascension isn't going to happen for another 44 days. So how is this, how is God glorified in Jesus and Jesus glorified by God in this? But let's think about these separately for a moment. Let's first consider how Jesus glorifies God. It seems like this happens through his obedience, in the face of all the conflict, the reality of Judas's betrayal and all that would happen in the subsequent hours, I think there's also a sense in which Jesus glorifies God because he allows God to work. He doesn't circumvent God's plan. He doesn't circumvent God's justice. Remember, because think about this. God set in motion way back centuries earlier that there would need to be a sacrifice for sins to be forgiven. 
And they kept sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing year after year after year after year after year in hopes that one day it would be permanently accomplished. And so rather than Jesus just saying, hey, God, no, I, I don't want to go through that. Let's just keep using lambs. He says he allows God's plan to work through him. He doesn't circumvent the plan of redemption. He has surrendered his life and his will to the Father. But I wonder, how often do we try to shortcut God's plans? How, how often do we, instead of wanting to take the long road through suffering, just want to go, let's go this way, God. I can learn that lesson much quicker if I don't have to go through this. How often do we try to take the easy way out rather than pressing through and pushing Trusting God through the whole process. We take justice into our hands and fail to allow God to work in his time and in his ways. So Jesus seems to glorify God because he allows the plan to work, but God also glorifies Jesus. And he seems to do this by allowing Jesus to be the means by which humanity can be reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this a bit more in in Galatians chapter 3. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Also, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And even as we read last week in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's where the glorification happens. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God glorifies Jesus by allowing him to be the means by which we come to faith, by we get reconciled to God. So Jesus, in this introduction to his discourse, his farewell discourse, makes these three predictions and illustrates two outcomes. And finally, he comes to one command. And and this is really where the rubber meets the road for, for us and for all of Jesus' followers. Look at verse 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not hard to understand that this new commandment, this one thing that Jesus wants his disciples to do is to love one another. Of course, this love is given an example. And as Jesus has loved us, he he tells us, love one another as I have loved you. 
He showed us how to love. He showed us how to love unconditionally. But this raises a couple of questions for me, and I want you to think about this. Why does Jesus say love one another, and he doesn't say love the world? Why does he do it that way? Why does he talk so much about one another? After all, doesn't he want his disciples to make a difference in the world? And I almost wonder if one of the things going through Jesus' mind is the fact that they're going to realize in a matter of hours that Judas just betrayed their Savior. Judas just betrayed their rabbi. And I wonder if he's thinking, love one another and include Judas in that. But there's another question that kind of comes to my mind, and that is, what does this love look like? What does this love look like? As we talked about a few moments ago, Jesus showed Judas love through all of this. Hugged him in the garden. And I think part of what Jesus is getting at is that he is forming his church, his assembly, in Greek, his ecclesia, among his followers. He's forming a community that's not marked by politics or wealth or race or ethnicity or social structure. Really, he's not even forming his assembly on denomination or convention. He is forming a community, an assembly, that is marked by love. This is a love that forgives. It's a love that heals. It's a love that restores, a love that cares. This is a love that is compelling. And it's a love that forms a community that is compelling. Bruce Milne, one of the commentators that I like to read said this, he said, we note also the power of evangelistic love. A loving community, says Jesus, is the visible authentication of the gospel. Love, as Francis Schaeffer said, love is the final apologetic. When we love that way that Jesus called us to, we visibly verify the reality and the presence of the gospel in our lives. But Milne goes on to note how love impacted the world of the early church. In fact, he, he notes from Tertullian that he, Tertullian reported in the late second century the comment of the pagans of his day. Behold, how these Christians love each other and how ready they are to die for each other. Their mutual love was the magnet which drew the pagan multitudes to Christ. And and he goes on to say, it's, it has the potential to do so still. We often hear of conflicts in churches. About one person having one opinion, another person having another opinion, and, and they can't seem to find a common ground. They can't seem to get past that, and they realize that this is the hill that I'm going to die on, on some minor issue of the color of carpet. And there are times when these Divisions in, uh, in churches and between churches is so divisive that it makes the news to which then the watching world looks at us and says, I don't want any of that. I've got enough of my own conflict. 
But when we show genuine, unconditional love, we reveal what kingdom in the what life in the kingdom should be like. So as we think about how we treat one another, can it be called love? Are our words marked by love to others, about others? Are our actions marked by love? Are our thoughts marked by love? Or would it be better to say that our actions, words, and thoughts are marked by divisiveness, backbiting, and gossip? We have to keep in mind, Paul again tells us in in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it right. He didn't wait for us to to overcome our addictions or, or understand all the detailed nuances of theology. He didn't wait for those times. He simply allowed Christ to die on our behalf because of the depth of his love for us, demonstrating that example that it, we may not have to wait for that other person, that offending person, as Carl prayed. We may not have to wait for that offending person to be asking for forgiveness before we go back to them and say, hey, look, what happened between us, I don't want that to hinder our relationship going forward. Oh, may our actions and thoughts and words toward others create a community that is is marked by the kind of love that Jesus called us to live. You see, we started out all this talking about Lou Gehrig's uh, farewell address to baseball. And as Jesus opened up his farewell to his disciples, he's not saying goodbye as much as he's urging us to carry on the way that he did. Jesus left us so that we could live in his love and how we love one another, drawing the outside world to him, into a relationship with him because of the community that love creates. I want to close by sharing a story about, about a woman that I, I used to work with. I'm going to call her Mary. It's not her real name. Mary was a, a devout follower of Christ, and she uh, was from another country. She moved here to the States, married a man. I think she may have thought he was a Christian, And they generally had a good relationship, but in God's sovereignty, were never able to have children. After about 30 years of marriage, maybe maybe a few more, it became apparent that something wasn't right in their relationship. And Mary found out that her husband had been cheating on her for 14 years. And he had had a child with that other woman. And Mary was really having a difficult time figuring out, what do I do with this? Do I forgive him? Do I divorce him? What's the right thing to do? Their marriage ended up dissolving. But what happened next is the thing that I think Jesus would want us to really think about. You see, her husband, now ex-husband, ended up being diagnosed with something like Parkinson's, and it, it went fast through his body. 
And she still loved him. She still cared for him. She went to the hospital. She went to the nursing facility. She went to his bedside to make sure that he was provided for to do things, even though she had no legal obligation to him anymore. But you know who else was there? The other woman. And she demonstrated love for that woman to the point where when, when he died, he died just a, a couple of years later. When he died, they sat next to each other at his funeral. It may seem like wow, this is a messed up situation, but think about the testimony of Jesus Christ, of the love that Mary showed for this, toward this adulterer who stole her husband. See the gospel on display. I hope that none of us ever really have to go through a difficult situation like that, but I assure you, if Mary can love her husband, her betraying husband and his mistress and their child, through all that, surely we can love one another among the little bits of crap that we might give to each other from time to time. Let's pray. God, we do, we do thank you so much for the way that you have loved us, the way that you demonstrated love for us, and, and that you didn't even spare your own son, but made a way for us to be in a right relationship with you. Lord, this command that you've given us to love is not an easy thing. Lord, there are hurts that we've experienced. There is pain that is deep. And, beyond, and that's just between, uh, among us. And then there's the other encounters that we have at work, in our health, in so many different ways. So God, I pray that you would help us to be a body, a community that is truly loving and honoring you. Loving one another. And Father, we pray that outsiders would, would be able to see the way that we show love for one another and they would be led and drawn truly by your spirit into a relationship with you. Lord, they, they would look past whatever preconceived ideas they may have about what this kind of church is. And they would see what it truly is because of what you've done for us. Lord, help us to do what is loving. Help us to ask the question, what does love require of me? God, you've demonstrated that for us as we're gonna consider in just a moment. Help us to live in a way that would truly honor you and represent your sacrifice for us. We ask this in your holy name.